This is the Sports Psychology Hour with Dr. Andrew Jacobs. I cannot express the gratitude what my son came and visited you. Dr. Jacobs has been in practice for 40 years as a sports psychologist. I have seen a change in youth sports in the last 10, 15 years. I've talked about it a lot on this show. The Sports Psychology Hour. The best advice on the radio each and every week. Failure and losing and screwing up is something that happens in life. It happens in sports. And I think we have to teach kids how to do that more effectively. This is where sports talk gets real. That word playing, it's gone from our society in a lot of ways with kids. And now here's your host, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Hello, everyone. I'm sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Welcome to the Sports Psychology Hour from our flagship station, Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City. We're here every week talking about the mental side of sports. And as you know, I've been on the air here in Kansas City for 30 years. Our shows are podcasted all over the place, broadcasted in a number of cities throughout the country the following week. And each week I try to talk about topics related to sports psychology, the mental side of sports, issues related to self-confidence, how you build it, how you destroy it. How about mental preparation? How does that work? The relationship of coaches, parents, and athletes. You know, I'm a co-author of a book called Just Let Them Play, guiding parents, coaches, and athletes to use sports, uh, written with Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame pitcher Jeff Montgomery and USA Swimming Hall of Fame coach Pete Malone. And in our book, we talk so much about the importance of communication, importance of understanding each other, what does it take to succeed or fail? And, and both of them know a lot about success. Jeff's in the Royals Hall of Fame, and Pete coached five Olympic gold medalists, five in swimming. And I've worked with several of them. And, and uh, throughout our work, one of the key things that I found in the things that I do is how important coach communication is and athletes understanding them is. Throughout my work, I've done so much work, and as we, as the Olympics are getting started here now, uh, back in the 80s, I worked as the team psychologist for the Olympic cycling team. I worked with the cycling team from 1982 through 1988. I uh, was in the 84 Olympics where we won nine medals, first medals we've won in 72 years. Accompanied the team to three world championships in Switzerland in 1983, Italy in 1985, and Colorado in 1986, and helped them prepare for the Seoul Olympics in 1988. We, we focus so much on mental preparation, the importance of communication, the importance of team building, and understanding each other. And part of that is about relationships. Uh, you know, a great athlete has, has a team that supports him or her, not just coaches and family, but teammates, uh, physical therapists, massage therapists, psychologists, trainers, all kinds of people work with that. Almost every athlete today has a team of people that work with them. And understanding athletes is really important. And today we're going to have a very fascinating interview because joining me is Dr. Edward Brodkin. He is a co-author of a book called Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to talk with Dr. Brodkin about his book and about you know, his beliefs and what we're talking about here. So, Dr. Brocken, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Jacobs. I really appreciate it. You know, uh, there's a book, a, a chapter in your book um, called What Do Michael Jordan and the Dalai Lama Have in Common, which I've read. And I was fascinated in there because as I was reading it, 
you were touching on all the things I've worked on in 40 years about relaxation and visualization and communication. It, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, overall, the book um, focuses on a concept we call attunement, which is this ability to tune into yourself and to another person over the course of an interaction, over the twists and turns, sometimes the unpredictable twists and turns of an interaction. And we think that's really important for sports and really important for life in general, for all kinds of relationships. And then it's a complex phenomenon, right? This ability to tune into yourself and others. So what we do is we, to try to help people understand it better and what goes into it, we break it down into four components. And what you're talking about is um, the first component that we talk about, which is sort of the foundation of all of it, is what we call relaxed awareness. And so we have this chapter on relaxed awareness, and we have this section called What Do Michael Jordan and the Dalai Lama Have in Common? And, you know, I've already spoiled the, the surprise, but what they have in common is this quality of relaxed awareness, which um, we think is really crucial for athletes, um, especially team athletes. But um, it's it's highly developed in some other areas like um, advanced meditators and things like that. That's that's where the Dalai Lama comes in. Well, it's interesting as I read it as I was reading that chapter, it just brought up a, a whole wealth of uh, experiences I've I've had with so many athletes. And what really hit me hard was in my office I have a picture of some cyclists in a race from the Tour de France from back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And it was sent to me by one of the uh, cyclists in the picture who I was working with. And he signed it and it said, Andy, I can see success, thanks for the push. And it's on the wall right next to my re relaxation chair in my office. And I always ask athletes to look at that picture and it's, it's signed by the athlete's name is Norm. I always ask them, which one's Norm? And it's it's funny, Dr. Brock, and virtually nobody ever picks him out. Well, he's in the middle of the picture, not in, in, in first place. Basically, he came in second. But he's totally relaxed. He's calm. He looks relaxed. And every other cyclist in there looks like they're so stressed they're about to, to crack. Mm. As, as one athlete told me, Doc, they all look constipated except for him. <laughs> um, and it was interesting. Because what he learned how to do was to work on relaxation and visualization. And he said that that made such a huge difference in his performance. It's amazing. You know, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. And I, I first started getting interested in this phenomenon in, um, in sports when I was, you know, I used to be um, a big Chicago Bulls fan back in the era of Michael Jordan, even though I didn't live in Chicago. And I, I read this interview of Phil Jackson, his coach, and they were asking him about Michael. And, um, you know, he made a comment. Phil Jackson made a comment and said, Michael is the most serene person I've ever met. And that sort of struck me. It's like because you, you think to yourself, what makes this athlete so great? And to hear his coach um, highlight the, this quality of serenity or relaxation you kind of scratch your head and you think that that's not necessarily what I would have expected. I might've expected him to say, you know, he's got the best jump or he's the fastest or whatever. He tries the hardest. And then I read, I was reading another article about Michael Phelps, who I also brought up. We also brought up in that chapter. And um, there was a uh, exercise physiologist at the Mayo clinic who was watching Michael Phelps 
swim in one of the Olympics where he won all these gold medals. And the um, article said, you know, while everyone else was focused on all the golds and the records he was setting, this exercise physiologist was watching him swim and said, he's the most relaxed person in the water I've ever seen. And, you know, again, it's sort of you had that head scratching moment where you think relaxed. I mean, think of how much pressure he's under and he's winning world records and, you know, winning gold medals and so on. So relaxed is not necessarily the quality I would have guessed at the outset. But this got me really interested in this phenomenon. Well, as you talk about that, as my mind starts taking off in all kinds of directions, what, what hits me on, on what you're saying is, is what I've worked with athletes for my whole 40 year career. And I talk about preparation, focus, attitude, and confidence as the keys to, to success. And I have a relaxation visualization exercise that I teach athletes to help get them mentally prepared. It has four parts. It starts with a breathing exercise, mm -hmm. then a muscle tightening and loosening exercise, flexing your muscles and head to your feet, then a confidence building section, and then a visualization section where they picture themselves in their sport and their event successfully completing it. We don't talk about winning or losing. We talk about success and being positive. And that's essentially what these athletes are like. And you mentioned Michael Jordan. One of the best books I've ever read was Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson, where he talks oh, yeah. extensively about this and, and how he worked with his team on that, getting them to trust each other and understand each other. I'm sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Joining me this morning is Dr. Edward Brodkin. He's the co-author of the book, Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania. We're on the leader in sports, Sports Radio 810 WHB. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. And now, State of Play with former Washington, D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt. The status of black women in America. A lot of people say, well, why do you need to talk about it? You've got Kamala Harris, a heartbeat away from the presidency. You've got Stacey Abrams being considered for Nobel Peace Prize. But I think we all know that's not the real deal. African-Americans and particularly women were the vessels by which to keep this human capital going. Uh, during slavery, then you had uh, Jim Crow. And there's a sensitivity on the part of women generally, whatever the race, and then particularly African-American women, to raise the point of, why aren't you talking about me? Why don't you have programs customized uh, to deal with my needs? And so I guess that explains why we're still struggling with it uh, in this year of 2021. For more, watch State of Play, Saturdays and Sundays at noon, 11 Central, on the Black News Channel. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. 
Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Hello again, everyone. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology Hour from our flagship station, Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City. I'm here every week. I'm having a great interview this morning with Dr. Edward Brodkin. He's the co-author of the book, Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. And we've been talking about one of the sections in his book, a chapter called What Do Michael Jordan and the Dalai Lama Have in Common, about relaxed awareness. And when, when, you, when you, Dr. Brockton, when you, when you have investigated relaxed awareness, you were talking about how there seems to be this peacefulness with some of these athletes when they're out there competing. They don't seem stressed or worried. And I think that's, from my perspective, that's because they do so much work with visualization and mental preparation in their minds about being out there. And I've, and I've read tons and tons of interviews and listened to interviews with so many athletes throughout the years and coaches who spend a lot of time on visualization. And research has found that when close to 85% of people who visualize on a regular basis will be much more successful than people who don't. What's your take on all that? Uh, it makes sense to me. Uh, let me ask you a question. When you say visualization, do you mean um, they're visualizing doing the, you know, some element of their sport or they're visualizing something else to relax them? They, they will visualize themselves in their sport. Mm-hmm. And there, there's two ways to visualize. Uh, you can eat as if you're watching a movie of yourself or mm-hmm. you're watching it as if you're watching it through your own eyes. And it can be a combination of both. You can go back and forth. And what, what I have people do with that is I have people not just visualize success, but visualize failure. So, if, for example, if you're a baseball player, 
chances are you're not going to get a hit all four times up. So one of the things we'll work on is if they strike out or make an out, you know, fly out, ground out, whatever, how are you going to feel mentally and physically when you go back to the dugout or whether you're going back on the field of the third out and then get in touch with yourself and get ready to come back the, for the next, next at bat. If you're a golfer, it, you know, picture your shot before you hit it, but inevitably you're not always going to hit it where you want to visualize it to go. So then have in your mind, how am I going to react back from that? So you don't get stressed out about it. Yeah, that seems super useful on, on many levels. I mean, one is I think, um, visualizing doing an act like a, a physical act, like a sports, an element of a sport is probably in some way activating the parts of your brain that actually would do that act. So in some sense, it's almost like a practice um, while visualizing. But then I think it's a kind of um, emotional exercise too, because, and I, I really like the way you said that visualizing doing it successfully, or maybe it not going well, visualizing both of those, because seems to me one of the hardest things would be to, um, you know, miss the shot or, you know, strike out or something not go well. And then to be able to put that behind you and then come back out the next time and just be in the moment um, and not be worrying too much about what just happened before. So by doing that visualization repeatedly, it's almost like, as psychologists say, sort of like a habituation. It's like, okay, so I'm, I messed up, I failed, but nothing catastrophic happened and I can come back and do it again and I can sort of remain calm. So, so it's almost like a exercise in relaxed awareness, I feel like is what you're describing is that they can repeatedly mentally go through what they're going to do while maintaining the state of relaxed awareness so that when they actually have to do it, they're in a better position to be in that state. Let me ask you, Dr. Brodkin, where does fear play into this from your perspective and in in the work you've done? Well, I mean, fear and anxiety is a normal human um, phenomenon, right? We all have that. And um, when we describe this state of relaxed awareness, we don't, we say it's not an unemotional state. It's not like an emotionally deadened state. It's not like you don't have any emotions. It's not like you might not feel afraid or anxious, but you can have those feelings. They can come up, you can kind of recognize them, but you can still stay centered and grounded and Calm. It doesn't overwhelm you, you know. So um, I think when athletes are in the midst of their sport, they can kind of get into a zone or a flow state, and they they may notice some emotions, but they can still stay in that zone. They can still stay in that flow state, that relaxed, aware state. See, I, I think that's where the great athletes embrace fear. Mm-hmm. They they don't allow it to become an obstacle or a barrier they make it part of their repertoire. In other words, I, I've worked with many, many, many field goal kickers, and I'm currently working with one of the top field goal kickers in the NFL right now. And, you know, we've talked about when you miss a kick, which for him was almost not at all this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but when he missed a kick, what was he going to do? And his whole thing was, well, when you miss, you know, he doesn't want to miss any, but if, if he misses one, he'll look at what went wrong discuss it with the holder and the snapper on the sideline, visualize making it before he comes back on the field for the next one so that he's gone through in his mind what he did wrong, but then visualize the success after that. So he's got a game. It's much like a golfer. You mm-hmm. know, most people listening to our, our podcast are not field goal kickers. Many more are golfers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you play golf and you're, you're about to hit over a lake, obviously you don't want to hit in the lake, but you need to visualize the shot. 
But if right. you if you picture hitting in the lake, then that's the image in your mind. Then you're going to get tense, and then your swing won't be clear and smooth. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a game plan. If I start to think that, how am I going to change it so I don't get consumed with that and get stuck in that negative mindset? Right, right. So it's it sounds like what you're saying is even great athletes can experience some fear, but they're able to make good use of it. They're able to um, to manage it or um, you know work with it. I think the key thing is they embrace it. As I said, they embrace it, yeah. and because they know it's going to happen. They know. You know, I mean, how often do pitchers pitch perfect games? I mean, how often does a quarterback go 30 for 30? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be incompletions. There'll be interceptions. There'll be, you know, wild pitches or there'll be balls hit in water or double faults or whatever it might be. So I think the great athletes don't get consumed with that negativity. Mm-hmm. And I think in your chapter, you know, basically you talk about that. I mean, what did you learn from the Dalai Lama in terms of what, what you wrote? Well, I think that, um, you know, the Dalai Lama, of course, is um, a Buddhist monk and spends many, many hours of meditation. And um, they uh, have a word for this in, in Sanskrit called shamatha, which sort of means abiding in a sort of relaxed, aware state, a state in which you are fully awake, um, you're alert in some way, but yet you're calm and relaxed. And um, so... Uh, you know, he's really mastered that state. And I think similar kinds of exercises like um, mindfulness-based exercises can be really useful for athletes as well. I think I think the great athletes, you know, we go back to the days of Babe Ruth. He visualized without knowing what the word was in essence. It wasn't like he said, I'm visualizing, but he would, you know, there was that, that very famous scenario where he told a little girl she was gonna, he was going to hit home run. I think it was a little girl for her. And then mm-hmm. he did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you hear you hear quotes from so many great athletes, they'll see it happening before. And yeah. so that's where the visualization and the, and the mental and physical relaxation together work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really powerful. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is Sports Psychology Hour. My guest today is Dr. Edward Brockton. He's the co-author, along with Ashley Palathra, of the book Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. When we come back from this next break, we're going to talk about communication especially with parents and, and, and kids and coaches, because I think that's, an as you know, if you listen to this show, that's something that I'm very, very sensitive to talking about because I think it's so important because there are so many issues that come with that. We're on The Leader in Sports, Sports Radio 810 WHB. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. State of Play with former Washington, D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt. Our topic today, the future of policing in America. But once you have a historical context, you understand why once there was professional policing in this country, it was really designed to patrol uh, slaves as well as other sort of new immigrant types who came to America. And so you understand better why there's pushback in the police department. They may want to do it, but it institutionally was uh, anchored in having that kind of mission. So maybe defund the police is the way to go. You know, start anew. I'm not sure. For more, watch State of Play TV Saturdays and Sundays at noon, 11 central on the Black News Channel or go to State of Play TV on YouTube.
America. Your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just gotta hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. (laughs) Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Hello again, everyone. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs from our flagship station, Sports Radio 810 WSB in Kansas City. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. As you know, I'm here every week discussing the mental side of sports. We're having a great interview this morning with Dr. Edward Brodkin. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania, co-author of the book, Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. We've been talking a lot about visualization and relaxation, but what goes into that also are some other important components, his, his elements of, a ten, of, of well, you, sure. you described them. You, you described these four elements for us. Sure. Yeah. So the overall concept is attunement. So being tuned into yourself and the other person, which can be really relevant to athletes and especially team athletes. And to break down this complex 
phenomenon of attunement, we talk about four components. One is relaxed awareness, which is what we've already been talking about. Then there's listening, understanding, and mutual responsiveness. And we can talk about each of them in more detail if you want. Well, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's talk about these last three in connection to the coach-athlete relationship. Um, and let me start off with this. I, I work with so many young athletes, um, high school and collegiate athletes, as well as professional. And, and one of the most important issues, Dr. Brodkin, that seems to be an obstacle, a barrier that brings so many of these people into my office is the fact that a lot of people don't listen to each other. Mm-hmm. And they don't take the time, especially from the coach's perspective, to listen to these athletes, to listen to what they're saying. And, you know, I always say a, a good coach checks his or her ego at the door. It's not about the coach. It's about the athlete. And a good coach doesn't talk at athletes. They listen to them. Why don't you expand on that? Yeah, and I've heard you say that in some of your other podcast episodes. I really think that's important. Um yeah, it, you know, these days there's something about our culture where it feels like uh, no one has the time to listen anymore and everyone's got their priorities and the coach wants to focus on winning and there's efficiency and, you know, it, maybe it seems like a waste of time or something to, to listen um, to your players, but I think it's actually a great investment. I think if coaches do take the time to listen, um, they're going to know what's going on with each of their players. They're going to know how to coach them better. Um, they're going to know if something's off and maybe what to do to correct that or help help the person. Um, and they're going to foster a, a a better bond, let's say, between the coaches and the players. And maybe some coaches feel like, well, look, I'm not here to bond with my players. I'm here to win games. But I think um, having a better quality of connection is going to help you win games. I mean, from my point of view. Well, that's that's also to me where the word trust uh, comes into play. Um, I, I've worked with so many teams over the years who have had athletes who trusted their coaches, yet there have been athletes who didn't trust their coaches. And, and a lot of that I think has to do with, you know, how the coaches would listen or take the time. I mean, a good coach to me, Dr. Brockton, I would say a good coach is a good psychologist, a bad coach needs a sports psychologist mm-hmm. and good coaches, I think are good listeners. And they don't put their ego in front of what's going on. And so in order to be a good listener, what do you feel, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you feel a good coach needs to be able to do to allow that bond with the, real, the athlete to really develop successfully? Well, I think I, um, they need to take the time to kind of tune in to each of their players, um, whether that's through an individual conversation or maybe really taking a careful look at them on the field, all the cues coming from them. You know, not just how they're performing athletically, but, you know, the nonverbal cues, their facial expression, body language, so on. Um, And, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about the Dalai Lama, like in that sort of field, um, they talk about this term skillful means or artfulness. And basically what that means is we can translate into, into coach player terms. Like if a coach wants to help a player to play better, I think they're going to be more effective rather than just having a generic way. Well, with every player, I do this, you know, this is my formula. I do X, Y, Z rather than looking at it that way. You want to individualize it some, to some extent to each player. And so you want to listen to your player and understand your player and use skillful means or artfulness and say, well, 
for this particular player, the best way I'm going to get through to him or her, or the best thing I could do to make them a better player is going to be this. And that's, that's the art of listening. And that's the art of understanding each of these players as individuals. Okay. So as I'm listening to you talk here, what's flying through my mind are the coaches who yell at kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Coaches who yell at kids, not, not, not the soccer coach who's yelling across the field, you know, get back, move up, not that mm-hmm. type of thing. The coach who will yell at a child or a, a young woman or man for making a mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and tell me where, where that fits into this whole, whole synopsis. I mean, I'm not going to say that's never, ever, ever appropriate, but I, I don't think using that as your standard operating procedure is a great idea. And, and part of the reason is what we were just talking about before, about relaxation, right? And how important being relaxed in the game on the field is. Not Relaxed doesn't mean like you're snoozing and losing attention. It means being very attentive, very alert, but like being relaxed enough to function well. And if you're, if a coach is yelling and berating and humiliating a player, um, that's not going to lead to a relaxed state. That's going to just lead to this spiral of increasing stress and then messing up more. And then the coach is yelling more and then more stress. And it's, I think that's generally going to be counterproductive. And then doesn't that then sort of throw a giant roadblock into the whole concept of understanding and mutual responsiveness? Because yeah. why would you then feel that you feel your coach doesn't understand you and, and isn't listening to you? So why would you respond back? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it tends to make the relationship uh, deteriorate. And um, and how can the coach really be listening and understanding this player if they're busy yelling at them? You know, that's that's just a one way kind of, you know, venting at the player. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tend to work well, I don't think, just the, the screaming and yelling. I mean, I'm not saying it's never worked in the history of coaching. I mean, may, maybe some coaches have been effective that way, but. Um, well, if I can, if I can interject, see that from my perspective, see, that's where, like I said earlier, a good coach is a good psychologist. So there are some people mm-hmm. who are motivated by fear who are motivated by, you know, sort of getting a coach in their face. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Tom Izzo at Michigan state is a great example of that he gets in his athletes faces a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they know what they're used to, it, they deal with it. Then, but then you have some, they can't handle it and they don't survive. So I think that's where yeah. when someone goes to, for example, a college program, they're, they'll, they'll know what that coach is like if they've mm-hmm. done some research on them. And, mm-hmm. you know, if that's, something they, and, and if that's something they need to motivate them, to push them, that's fine. But many people, that, that becomes counterproductive because yeah. then you're not listening. If we take your concepts here, they're not listening or understanding their athletes. <laughs> because it all becomes about them rather than about, about the athlete. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, there, I, I would agree there, there would be some athletes, and you know this better than I because you're the sports psychologist, but that makes perfect sense. There are some athletes that, you know, they, they might find that motivating. Maybe they need a quote-unquote kick in the pants, not literally, but they need, they need that kind of um, hard motivation and that, you know, they function well with that. But then there's going to be others, maybe many others who – don't function well with that. And you're, and I think that makes sense too, that if the players know going in, well, this is just the way the coach is like, expect it. This is how it's going to be. Um, then from some of them, or maybe many of them, they can let that roll off of that. So, yeah, I mean, maybe sometimes that does work well. It, it can in the right scenario, but once again, 
I think that's where if, if you're, you, you know, for kids on, t- like I, I have a, a young man I just saw this week. He's 10 and he has a baseball, he's a baseball player. His baseball coach is 6'4", 250 pounds. And this, this kid probably weighs 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's a really small kid. Yeah. And he struck out the other day and the coach yelled and screamed at him. Well, he doesn't want to play anymore. Yeah. Okay. Well, why would a giant man scream and yell at a, a little kid for striking out? You know, mm-hmm. so that's that's where I think if we take these concepts you, you, you put together, l- relaxed awareness, listening, understanding, and mutual responsiveness, it all fits together. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. My guest today is Dr. Edward Brockton, the author of Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections, co-authored with Ashley Palathra. We're on the leader in sports, Sports Radio 810 WHP. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. And now, State of Play with former Washington, D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt. The future of the two-party system. We have the Democrats who always have their challenges. It's a wide tent and therefore a challenging tent, but also the Republican Party that seems to be having really acute challenges. We've seen several of their U.S. senators say they're just not even going to seek re-election. And then we saw the insurrection on January 6th, where I think 147 of them still voted not to respect the electoral vote. It's a challenge when a party rejects Liz Cheney, a challenge when the party rejects their standard bearer, Mitt Romney, Uh, A real challenge is what will be the heart and soul of the Republican Party. It does not bode well for our country. For more, watch State of Play, Saturdays and Sundays at noon, 11 Central, on the Black News Channel. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I gotta tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation. And it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just gotta hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. (laughs) Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. 
This message is brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the US Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Hello again, I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs from our flagship station, Sports Radio, 810 WHB in Kansas City. This is Sports Psychology Hour. Well, I'll tell you what, having a great interview this morning with Dr. Edward Brogdon from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a psychiatrist and his co-author, along with Ashley Palathra, of a book called Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. We've been talking about the importance of visualization and relaxation, about listening, about understanding each other. But the title of the book, Dr. Brogdon, Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. Tell us what that means. Well, um, it, it means making your communication more effective and your and your connections better and more effective. So um, we could talk about this in a lot of different contexts, but just sticking with what we were talking about before about, let's say, coaches and players. And let's even go back to the um, question about coaches yelling at players. I think there's a way in which um, coaches and players can miss each other if that's going on. You know, like if the coach is yelling and yelling all the time, at a certain point, players, it may work for some players, but others may just start to zone it out, tune it out, like, oh, there he goes again, he's yelling. So the players, in some ways, are not even really paying attention anymore. It's just like, wow, 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 wow. So, and that's probably not what the coach wants, right? I mean, they're yelling because they're frustrated and they want this player to really hear them and take in what they're saying. So, in some sense, they're missing each other. The, the communication is not effective. And to make the communication effective, to make everyone get to, to what they want, um, they've got to find a way to communicate where they can actually meet each other and, and the, you know, the messages are getting across effectively. So I think that's what we're really talking about is taking your interactions and your relationships to a different level um, away from the, you know, we're all going to miss each other sometimes, right? None of us is perfect, but to sort of increase your percentage of time that you're really communicating effectively. Okay, so so let's explore this for a little bit. How do you recognize that you're not on the same wavelength, that you're missing each other in your communication? Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> well, if, if you're in the zone where you're yelling a lot, you may not recognize it because you may be so angry that you're just not even picking up on the other person's cues. I mean, I think just sticking with that example, if the other person just looks like they're zoning out, like they're losing eye contact with you, they're just looking down, um, they're twiddling their thumbs, or they're, they're just looking like, when can I get out of here? They're, they're, you're probably missing each other. Your, your communication's not getting across. They're just like, I've had enough of this, like, we gotta stop. Um, on the other hand, how do you know when you are effectively communicating? I think if you're open to the other person's cues, like they're going to look engaged. They're making more eye contact with you. They're not, they're, it's seeming to get through to them. Like it looks like a light bulb's going off in their head, so to speak, or, you know, um, you can see it in their eyes that they're like, Oh yeah, I get it. Wow. You know, this, this, what you're saying is taking me back to graduate school in San Diego, California in the 1970s mm-hmm. when we learned about a great psychologist named Carl Rogers and mm-hmm. Rogerian therapy and basically his way of doing therapy was saying let me repeat back what you said to make sure I understand it Mm -hmm. and so I think a great coach may ask an athlete you know that question 
do me a favor. Can you repeat back what I just said to me so I can make sure you understand where I'm coming from? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that fit into what you're saying here? Totally, totally. And, and just to add to that, I think uh, what would be really cool is if the coach also did it in the other direction. So if the coach checked in with their player and then the coach said, okay, so what I'm hearing you say is you're feeling this way or you're thinking this. or, And I think that even just a simple thing like that could mean a lot to a player because then it would be like, wow, my coach really listen to me and they they get it they get what i'm saying now that doesn't mean the coach is going to agree all the time or sort of give in to whatever the player wants or thinks is right or give up their position of authority or you know give up the position of giving advice but at least it shows the player that um they took the time even if it's just a few seconds to listen to them and really register what they're saying and i think that can really improve communication well and that's where you know your whole concept of of listening I mean, years ago, a, a, a friend's grandmother once said to me, if you, if you talk quietly, then you will listen and hear better. So if you talk quietly, you know, it's going to make that person try to listen to you more. And if you talk really loudly, it's going to be really difficult. You know, you may tune them out because you, you'll feel you're yelling at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And in that book we were talking about earlier, Sacred Hoops, I think Phil Jackson talks about, there's a, there's a section where he talks about that, of really making an effort to listen to his players um, and to you know, take what they're saying seriously. That doesn't mean that he's not going to come back to them with other instructions or advice, but just to have that moment of really taking it in. So if we take these concepts we've talked about here, relaxed awareness, listening, understanding, and mutual responsiveness, to put put them all together, what does that what does that do for a great relationship? Because your title you titled your book "Missing Each Other: How to Cultivate a Meaningful Connection." So when we put all these together, what does that do to, to develop a, a really good relationship in terms of communication and understanding? It, it improves the communication, improves the understanding, and um, it bridges the divide more. Um, um, you know, if you think back to relationships that you've had could have been with a coach or just with anyone in life where, you know, on one level, it can feel a little superficial or they don't really know me or they don't really get it. And then sometimes you have an experience with another person where you're like, wow, we had a little breakthrough there. Like, I feel like they really paid attention to me carefully for a minute and they really got something about me. And because they got something about me, now I somehow feel like we have a better connection and I'm going to listen to them more because they listen to me and I'm going to listen to them more. I, I think sometimes like coaches feel like the only way they can get through is by yelling. I don't mean to harp on that point, but, but the irony is I think if they take the time to listen at least a little bit to their player, then the player is going to reciprocate and they're going to listen to the coach even more. And, and it's not just with coaches and players. I think that's with any you know, interaction between two people. Let me ask you, what, what was the motivation for, for you and, and Ashley to write this book? Well, it's a, um, it's a long story. I don't want to go, go on about it too long. But basically, um, part of my work as a psychiatrist is I work with people on the autism spectrum. And um, we were developing uh, some programs to help adults on the spectrum with their social communication. And then as we were working on that and with these adults, you know, Ashley and I said to each other, I think what we're really trying to teach here is attunement. And then we thought, 
you know, I think this is not just for people on the spectrum. I think this is a, a general phenomenon among people. And I think a lot of us in our society right now seem to be missing each other um, or not communicating well. And so maybe this Well, be, especially in, in, because of what's happened in the last year and a half. Absolutely. I mean, COVID is just, um, of course, it's been a huge impact. But even before that, if you look at numbers about sort of loneliness in our society and just the, the sense of atomization or people not really connecting well, um, over the last several decades, th those have been really going up in a big way. And so, um, yeah, so these are some of the things that, that motivated us. What would you say that the main goal from this book is? What would you like people to be able to accomplish by reading it and taking something from it? Because I think there's some great lessons to be learned from what, you, what you've been writing here. Thank you. Um, I think that the book does two things. Number one, it familiarizes people with this concept um, of attunement, which I think they'll recognize as something from their daily lives that's probably important to them, but that people don't tend to really talk about it that much. So it gives some background on that, some science on that. But another thing is that at the end of each of the chapters, so the, the chapter on relaxed awareness and listening and so on, at the end of each chapter, we give some exercises that um, readers can try on their own. Some of them, it's sort of similar to the ones that you described, the visualization ones, but there's like mindfulness exercises, there's some physical exercises, some sort of more mental exercises that can build up um, each of these components of attunement and that I think can end up helping people with their communication in their daily life. So, you know, our ultimate goal is to, to be helpful to people and to um, give them strategies and ways to get better at these things. Dr. Edward Brockton, thank you so much for joining me today. If people like to get a hold of you, how can they reach you or get your book? Yeah, um, thank you. The best way is to go to our book website, which is www.missingeachother.com. I would say that's the single best way. You can also follow me and Ashley on Twitter. So my Twitter is at Ted Brodkin and Ashley's is at Ashley Palathra. Thank you so much, Dr. Brock. And this has been a fascinating interview. I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to join us. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobs. I really enjoyed it. I'm sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Of course, you can reach me several ways. Follow me on Twitter at, at DRJ Sports Psych. My website is winnersunlimited.com. You can always send me an email at drj at winnersunlimited.com. And you can always call me at 816-561-5556. I am sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. And now, State of Play with former Washington, D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt. We're going to do a very deep dive into the issue of the wealth gap, the wealth divide with African Americans and the larger population, and try to understand and measurably why that divide exists. Slavery, the implications, uh, Jim Crow, the measurable implications, the Homestead Act and the GI Bill, and how somehow African Americans completely missed or significantly missed those opportunities. So many issues, the criminal justice issue, health issues, education issues, almost all of it, in my opinion, just me, you can attribute it to the wealth gap that exists in America, institutionally exists in America. For more, watch State of Play, Saturdays and Sundays at noon, 11 Central, on the Black News Channel. 
If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners.